If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have printed in your bulletin that you should have received this morning, we have printed the passage. And so I'd invite you to take that. You can follow along with us. You can take that home with you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Alex Culpepper. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. And uh, what we do every week as we worship is that we walk through the Bible together. And so uh, we printed that out for you so that you could follow along with us and so that you could uh, know the passages that we are going to be drawing from this morning. Before we get into Matthew, I'd just like to read for you part of this passage from Galatians, from Galatians chapter 4. From Galatians chapter 4, it says this, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. It says this a uh, little bit here about the fullness of time. We are in a season where we eat a lot. Amen? Amen. We are feasting. We are celebrating. And uh, perhaps we're eating more than we normally do, right? Yeah, so that, that's uh, an experience that we have. And so uh, I want to speak to an experience that maybe you've had recently. Maybe you're going to have this experience today. Uh, and you're sitting there and you're eating all of this amazing food. And actually, uh, at this point, your hand and your mouth and the intake is working faster than your brain can adjust to what's happening to your body. And so you're just uh, kind of bringing in the food and bringing in the food until all of a sudden, your brain catches on to what you've been doing. And you go, oh, I need to stop. Right, like I need to pull away. I need to step back. No more. Like I literally cannot eat another bite of food, right? So you've probably had that experience. Now I'm not here this morning to accuse anybody of gluttony, right? That's between you and your conscience and the Lord. I just want to commend that to you. But, uh, but many of us can relate to the idea of being full. And when we're full, what happens? Well, biologically, Things in your body adjust to the reality that you now have more food in your body than you did before. Like blood, your blood literally like goes to your gut in order to help you digest the food. Your nervous system orients around the fact that all of your energy needs to be focused on digesting the food in your body. Your body focuses on digestion. So what happens? Well, maybe after you eat, have you ever noticed that you get cold? after you finish eating a really big meal? It's because the blood is going away from your skin and towards your gut. Uh, you ever notice that it takes a little bit more effort to move when you're full? Now that could just be because you, know, you have a little bit more weight to you from all that stuff that you've ate. But it's, it's actually because you know, your body is focusing on digestion. Ever notice that you get sleepy when you, uh, when you eat? Your brain is so oriented towards this that it wants, like it, your body can't help but focus on the fact that your body is full. And so your body actually, it shifts everything now to respond to the fullness that it's experiencing. And that's kind of how I want us to think about this idea in the book of Galatians, the fullness of time. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. It's like as if creation itself, suddenly everything in creation and time and in space had aligned together and it was like as if nothing else could happen. All of the things had taken place that needed to take place. Uh, the plan that God had aligned from ages past, everything that needed to happen had happened. It was ready to go into action. And so all of creation was geared up for this thing to happen. It's, it's as if the very clock itself was set to this event. That time was kind of like we do at the dinner table, bursting at the seams, right? waiting for what was about to happen, anticipating this event. So what is the event? The event is God sent forth his son, born of a woman. But we can't stop there. Like if all we talk about is Jesus' birth, but we don't talk about the reason for Jesus' birth, then we've missed the point. Why? Why has God sent forth his son? God has sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption. So how does adoption work? How does adoption work? A child who was formerly not in a family, had no family to call their own, that child now gets a mother and a father and a family who come and take care of them, welcome them into that family. And so what the, the author of Galatians is saying is he's saying, hey, time was full for God to send his son for the sake of adopting people into his family, for bringing in children. So this morning, we're going to take a look at one piece of the Christmas story and how it shows us that time itself was bursting at the seams for this thing to happen. So Matthew 2, 1 and 2. It says this in Matthew 2, 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and it rose, and we have come to worship him. These wise men... We can call them magi, right? Magi is the word that we use to describe them. And magi are a class of fortune tellers and magicians who worshipped many gods. That's what magi are. That's what these wise men are. So over the years, we have assumed that there were three magi because they gave, us, uh, gave Jesus three gifts. But there could have been two or eight, or ten. Their number really doesn't matter as much as their occupation. right? This class of people exists to assist kings and world leaders. And what do they do for these kings and world leaders? Well, they provide supernatural insight. They read the stars. They interpret dreams. They practice divination. Some of them cut animals open and <laughs> see how the organs fall and say, oh, like this is going to happen because this is how the organs of that animal fall. This, these uh, people practice these things. And some of them practice the studying of prophecies of other religions. And so it's worth noting that these magi, they would have been the most detestable kind of people by Jewish standards. The most detestable kind of people. Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12 says this, anyone who practices divination 
or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Abomination, that, that word is essentially telling us that this is kind of the greatest extent of corruption that you could imagine. And yet, if you're paying attention to the story, these magi have come to worship Jesus. They've come to worship the Jewish king. And it says that they were from the east. So where does that, what does that mean? Well, the east tells us two things. It, it tells us that they were not Jewish, since they were from the east of Judea. But it also tells us that they couldn't have been Roman either, because Judea was about the furthest point east that you could get in the Roman Empire. And the land to the east of Rome was Persia. Persia was the land to the east of Rome. It was kind of, Judea was at the eastern edge there. And so, so these are then Persian magi. So in order to grasp what these guys have to do with the fullness of time, I want to tell you a story. About 500 years before this event where they come bringing these things to Jesus, there was a Jewish Persian member of the magi who became prominent in Persian magi history. And that person, his name was Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish servant during Israel's exile to Babylon. And Daniel, we know Daniel for, uh, he gets thrown into the lion's den by the king, right? And, uh, and God protects Daniel while he's there, sends an angel to shut, literally shut the mouths of the lions. And, and Daniel is just sitting in there with the lions, enjoying his time, right? And so, uh, so he was this Jewish servant during Israel's exile. He served in Babylon. Babylon was the capital of Assyria. While Daniel was serving in Babylon, Assyria, the country of Assyria, it changed hands. And while he was there, it became Persia. So, so Daniel is a magi in Persia. And, and for what it's worth, these magi who were in Babylon, they were magicians and fortune tellers who worshipped many gods. But Daniel himself, he was none of those things. Daniel was not a magician. Daniel was not a fortune teller. And Daniel did not worship many gods. In fact, he worshipped one god, the one true god. He worshipped Yahweh, the I am, the creator, the god, the god who says, I am the god above all other gods. And so uh, being a faithful worshiper and follower of Yahweh, Daniel had a stronger connection to the supernatural than any of these magi had ever had to the supernatural. And what he did is that he brought his connection to Yahweh to bear on this role that he was playing in Persia. So Daniel, and Daniel himself had three friends, the, the four of them all together, they did this work as magi, but they did it only worshiping one God and obeying all of God's laws while they did it. And so Daniel 1.20 says this about Daniel and his friends. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Translation is that no one had ever witnessed Magi quite like these magi. So, so one of the things that Daniel did while he was serving in Babylon as a magi is that he wrote down prophecies. 
prophecies that God had given him. And so because Daniel was regarded as kind of the best in his class, the best of the best, we could actually expect that these magi would hold on to the traditions that Daniel had wrote down, that they were keeping track of them all the way over there in Persia in the east, that they were measuring the things that Daniel had said, that they were following the timelines that he had set, prophecies about things that would happen when time is full. These magi, they valued Daniel's prophecies, and so they searched diligently for their fulfillment. So what did Daniel write down? Well, he wrote down this prophecy, for example. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a, a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, that is the Lord, and was presented before him. And verse 14 says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples all nations, all languages should serve him, this king. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel, this Jewish person, Persian member of the Magi, he provides a prophecy from his Jewish God about a king whose kingdom will last forever. And in another place in this book, it actually gives us a pretty distinct timeline for when you could expect to see this king come on the scene. And so Daniel, he gives his readers clues about kind of this point in time when time will be bursting at the seams. And so 500 years later, these Persian magi come around and say, we've been reading Daniel's prophecies for 500 years. And we know that time is full. Right? It's time. And so they come saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So because these prophecies in Daniel were full, they, they literally come saying, hey, the time is full. The king, he should be here now. It's time for the king to be here. But then I want you to take note of their stated reason for being there. So one of the things they did, right, they're reading prophecies. They're keeping track of the prophecies that Daniel had written down. They say, okay, the time should be full here. But I want you to see the other reason that they're there, their stated reason. They say, they are there because we saw his star when it rose. Which points us to another way that time was full. Right? These guys are stargazers. They're looking up in the sky. They are literally, they spend so much of their life looking up at the sky. They believe that the heavenly, that the angels, that the spiritual beings are moving the stars around in the sky to send messages to people. That's what these guys believe. And so they're looking up into the sky. And when they see the stars align in a certain way and one particular star point for them where they ought to go, they realize this message. There's a message in the sky. And that message is telling us that the king is here. Right? They look up in the night sky. They discern the messages. So apparently at this time, our planet, relative to the position of our galaxy, relative to the position of the rest of the universe, had been arranged in such a way that these stargazers at this particular time were able to discern a message that was clearly connected to the prophecy that had been written down. So the prophecy says, hey, look for it at this time. And then the stars say, hey, look for it at this time. It's as if God 
when he created the universe, set the stars in the sky in such a way that when the clock ran and those stars moved around the universe, they would align at the particular time of the birth of his son and point these men in Persia to the king who was going to be born in Bethlehem. And this is not even to speak. I mean, that, so there's two ways that time was full. This is not even to speak of the incredibly well-positioned time that Jesus came on the scene. You see, Jesus and his life, his life and death and resurrection, they happened in the middle of what was called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana is the peace of Rome. Basically, what it meant is that in the entire Roman Empire, which was massive at this point, you could travel from territory to territory to territory and not worry about somebody arresting you because you were from a different territory. You used to have to worry about that, but at this time, you didn't have to worry about that. So that meant that people who had the message about Jesus' life and death and resurrection could travel from territory to territory to territory and share that message with other people to ensure that that message got shared with many people. This doesn't account for the, um, the roads that were built in Rome that ensured that messengers and messages could travel quickly throughout the empire. This doesn't speak of even the common language of Koine Greek, which just so happened to come around at this time, so that people of many different nations all spoke roughly one common language, so that many nations could hear the message in a language that they spoke in order to take the message with them back to their languages and their peoples. And all of this was ensuring that knowledge of a message about a humble baby who was born next to the animals, who was laid in a manger, who grew up teaching about God's kingdom, who was executed by the Roman government on a cross, and who rose from the dead. And he is now king of kings and lord of lords. All of this was to ensure that that message was so uniquely placed in time that it could spread rapidly throughout the world. See, time was full in all of these different ways. And why? What does all of this tell us? Well, it tells us, I think most clearly, that God had a plan. Right? God had a plan. It tells us that God had in mind a particular time. It tells us that God had kind of ordained the pieces of creation to all work together around this thing that he was doing. And it tells us that God carried his plan out to completion. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See... Under the law is a description of all of us. We are all under the law. You see, God has a law. That law has certain moral expectations for all people. And when it comes to meeting the standard of God's expectations, why don't you just tell me how you're doing on that, right? Yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. We, we all have challenges in relation to that. We all fall short of meeting God's standard. We prioritize self over others. We lift ourselves up in pride. We refuse to admit when we're wrong. We give ourselves over to addiction. Or we simply think that we know better than God does what's good for us. Right? In all of these ways, 
We are afflicted by the reality that we are under the law and we fall short of it. And so what God's law actually reveals to each of us is that we are estranged from God by nature. That, that we were born in such a way and now live and act in such a way that by nature we are at odds with God. Like we're not on the same page as him. But go with me for a second. Because this is important for all of us to know. This comes to us from a guy named Augustine in the uh, fourth century. He says, God created us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. See, the God who we are estranged from, the God who you're estranged from, he created you for himself and your heart is restless until it rests in him. See, but we so easily give ourselves over to other things besides him. Right? We so easily make ourselves estranged from him. But this passage tells us that God sent his son in the fullness of time. Why? To redeem us. Redeem is a very specific word. It speaks of being purchased out of slavery. It speaks of somebody paying uh, kind of the fees to a master to purchase a slave for themselves. Right? He purchased us out of our slavery. What this is saying is that Jesus came at the right time so that his life might be a payment. Like he took on himself our estrangement from God, our rebellion against God, and died in our place for that rebellion. So that his blood might purchase us out of slavery. So that we could be adopted. And adoption is a beautiful picture. It shows us parents who otherwise would have had no expectation or concern for a child but they recognize the state of that child without family to care for that child. And so they decide to give that orphan an identity as a son, as a daughter, making that orphan a part of their family. And this passage is saying that because God sent the King of Kings to redeem us, then all of us who are far off from God because of the things that we choose and the things that we do and how we're born, right? All of us who are far off from God can actually be brought into God's family. That we can be given an identity of son, of daughter, of child. So I want you to see then how this reality that we are describing here is displayed in the lives of the Jewish, or sorry, of the Persian Magi who were called abominations. Let's just look. Matthew 2, 9 to 10, it says this. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I want you to imagine that you're a member of this group, these, uh, these magi, these people who read prophecies and anticipate what's going to happen, but you've held on to this tradition from Daniel telling you about a king who is going to be a king over all other kings. And you've been waiting, and you've been waiting, and it just so happens that at this time and place, you get to be the people who discover the king. 
You get to see the place that the star was pointing to. And that's the kind of joy that is filling their hearts at this moment. Something that they have been waiting for for 500 years, they are finally getting to discover. So verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These magi, these lawbreakers, these people who had been called abominations, these non-Jewish polytheistic magicians, it says that they fell down and worshipped Jesus. They bowed down and they acknowledged Jesus' lordship over everything. That word worship literally means to bow down and kiss the feet of a king. They acknowledged him as king of kings and lord of lords. They did this with their gifts. They did it with their actions. And they said, by their action in this moment, they said, our lives are to be devoted to this king. And because of what God sent his son to do, these magi who were estranged from God could be welcomed into God's family. They would be invited to be called sons of the Most High God. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, God arranged time like this to give you a chance to be welcomed into his family. The reason God arranged time like this is to give all of us a chance to be welcomed into his family. But if you don't know where you are with him... I want you to know this morning that the reason God arranged time like this was to give you the very opportunity that he extended to those magi. is to give you the very opportunity that many in this room have experienced. Right, so, so I don't know what your experience of estrangement from God is like. If you've ever been aware of it that much, I'm not even really sure. But all of the places where we seek identity and fulfillment apart from him are empty. But he, as the Lord of all, he gives the opportunity to come to you and say, you don't have to put your identity in that anymore. You can be a child. You can be my child, my son, my daughter. So if you want to be welcomed into God's family, then what you need to do is you need to trust the king as king over your life. Right? You, if he truly is king of kings and lord of lords, then you need to surrender your life to him. To go from being estranged into becoming family. So from there, you start taking steps of following Jesus. You find other trusted Christians. You get involved in a church. You find other family members to help you walk the walk. But the point is, if you have been estranged from God, it does not have to stay that way. You can trust him. So what, number two? They said, we have come to worship him. The response that we all have this morning, that we're all invited into, is to worship him. Is to acknowledge him as king of kings and lord of lords. Is to sing to him in devotion. Is to acknowledge him with our hearts. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to give instruction as to how we're going to respond together in worship. Would you pray with me, please?
Father, I thank you for your plan that you had set forth from the foundation of the world. That you would arrange stars in their place. That you would arrange prophecy and speak of time. So that at the right time, everything would align. To point to the fact that your son, who you sent in the world to be God with us, Emmanuel. To point to the fact that he was indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. So I pray for our hearts here this morning that you would direct our hearts in acknowledgement of this king who was born in a manger. That you would give us the same sense of joy and wonder, Holy Spirit. That you would give us the same sense of joy and wonder that you gave to these Magi, that you would allow us to stand in awe of what you have accomplished to take us who were estranged from you and make us members of your family. Thank you, Jesus, for this. I pray this in Jesus' name.